Yes, talking uh, taxes this morning. And when this was first announced, there was certainly no shortage of reaction. Talking about the employer health tax, one of uh, many taxes that the Canadian Taxpayers Association or Federation is taking issue with. And joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this is Chris Sim, the BC Director. Chris Sims is the BC Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Chris, great to have you back on the show. Thanks so much for having me on. Uh, In particular, looking at the employer uh, health tax, and this is one that business has raised issues about as well. What is your concern about how the employer health tax is being rolled out? Well, number one, we're very concerned about the fact that the employer health tax or the EHT is being imposed on job creators and businesses that include local governments, by the way, while at the same time, the medical services premium, the MSP, is still lingering around at 50% for a year. So for a year, these job creators and these employers will actually be paying a double dip on health care taxes. It's actually a way that they were able to stay in the black during the last budget, if you take a look carefully at the numbers. And so, number one, off the top, that is completely unfair. Number two, the NDP campaigned on getting rid of the MSP, the medical services premium. It's that health care tax that many of us find either hard to pay or very annoying. They find it's burdensome. And our concern with it, number one, is that it's not fair to make people pay directly for their health care when they already pay for it through their taxes. More than 42% of our incomes go to various levels of government in the form of taxation or tolls or fees. And also, as was pointed out by my my uh, so the person who came before me, so it's an early Saturday morning, um, <laughs> Jordan Bateson, there's a word that comes for that, right? Jill's going to find it for me. Predecessor. Thank you. There you go. <laughs> That's a good Scrabble word, too. It is. My predecessor, Jordan Bateman, had pointed out that a big chunk of the MSP is eaten up through administration, like a hefty, hefty dose. I think it was something like 34% of it. And so we're expecting the same thing to happen with this new employer health tax. And we think that this is really a big waste of money. It only creates jobs, often for bureaucrats working in Victoria, and it doesn't actually provide good care. And the major thing that we found while we were touring across BC this past summer, we went from Courtney to Cranbrook, every single community leader brought up the EHT because it's hitting cities and towns. A lot of people don't think of that, but cities and towns almost by default have a payroll of more than $500,000. And so by default, they're getting hit with this brand new health healthcare tax. And where is that money going to come from? Well, they're facing hiking up property taxes. And so by stealth, uh, British Columbian taxpayers are getting hit with another one. And I think one of the things that you touched on and pointed on, and this was brought up when it, when it was first announced, was even if you completely disagree with shifting the system from the MSP to the employer health tax, and even if you think that it unfairly targets uh, employers, the overlap is also, like you said, it may, it's unfair. It's, it's, it's not replacing a tax with another tax for that first year. It's doubling the tax. Yes, it really is. And that isn't what they said they were going to do. I've gone back through tapes and they say, you know, are you going to get rid of the MSP? Yes, we'll get rid of it. We'll reduce it, then we'll get rid of it. Yay. (laughs) But there's no follow-up saying that they're going to hit people uh, with a double dip with the MSP and this new employer health tax. There's no mention that they're going to download 
a portion of healthcare funding responsibility onto cities and towns across British Columbia. And there's no mention that they're also going to now be considering, if you look at the fine print on the budget, they're taking a look at so-called food taxes, things like uh, taxes on what they call junk food, on sugar, on fat, on salt, who knows. And so they're paying people to take a look at this, three different academics, to find out if they should slap us with a junk food tax. And when you get right down to it, if you take a look at so-called soda pop taxes in the United States and where they try to do it in Mexico, it works for a minute. Consumption goes down a little bit, but then the habits go right back to where they were. The only difference is government takes in a lot more money. It doesn't change behavior. And when you also get right down to it, if you look at different layers of fat taxes, food taxes, etc., it's really food snobbery. So quite often you'll hear people mock the KFC double down, right? They'll call it junk food. They'll say it's disgusting, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they'll talk about taxing things like that. If you take a look at the double down, calorically speaking, it's almost identical to chicken cordon bleu in a French restaurant. The ingredients are the same. The calories are the same. Sodium, protein, fat, et cetera. But they're not going to be hitting that with a special tax. If you take a look at, say, a really fancy drink from Starbucks, like a big mochaccino, that's got a ton of sugar in it. But they're not talking about slapping that with a tax. Oh, no, no, no. They'll hit a can of Coca-Cola with it, though. And so what happens is they often wind up taking money from the poorest people, from the most low-income people, because they disagree with their food choices. And it doesn't change their behavior. All it does is rake in more money for government. And so we're really concerned about this new mode of health care taxes. And we really want government to actually tighten their belts and find the money within their existing budgets to actually provide the health care they say they're going to. Have you looked at it as well? Because, again, looking at the MSP, and I know a lot of people hated the uh, the MSP, and like you said, it was it, it was a burden for a lot of people. For others, though, uh, that worked for companies that paid it or either paid half of it or it came right off their paycheck, it could go by, depending on where your, your pay grade was, it could go by somewhat undetected. And if you made under a certain amount of money, you didn't pay it, uh, under 30000 and then it went gradually up to, I think, over 40000 uh, Have you looked at it? Will this now shift in that the uh, the employee the employer health tax taking once the year of double dipping is over and it shifts to just the employer health tax is that still going to be more of a burden do you think for the companies with a payroll of more than half a million my main concern when that happens once the smoke clears and the double dip has finished happening all that sort of thing is the concerns that are being brought to us by mayors and city leaders and town leaders they say that this employer health tax is going to hit them harder than the MSP was. And that's pretty significant when you consider it, because a lot of times employers will cover, as you point out rightly, the MSP. And so quite often an employee may not notice it unless they're very scrupulous about taking a look at their pay stub and figuring it all out. But now this new employer health tax, the EHT, is hitting everybody. The only people they're giving exemptions to just recently are not-for-profits. But that doesn't mean that they're not that they're going to exempt municipalities, and it's one of the main reasons why this was brought up vehemently at the municipalities meeting that they just finished having in Whistler, is because apparently it's hitting them harder than the MSP did. It must have been the case then that some cities and towns weren't covering MSP payments for all of their employees. 
because they say they are across the board seeing thousands of dollars of new bills coming in that they weren't paying under the MSP. So it's a good question. When it comes to, say, a big fancy corporation, they probably won't notice. But when it comes to, say, a municipality, a city, or say a busy restaurant, it's easy when you've got three different big shifts going on to get over $500,000 if you're actually successful in that business. It'd be easy for them to be hit with this employer health tax. And the other thing that was really upsetting for people is that it was sprung on them. It's a huge tax. It's an enormous burden. And when we were in the budget lockup last year, it was just announced. There had been apparently no consultation before that. And so a lot of different businesses and job creators were really pulling their hair out. And we need to remember that it's very easy in the rhetoric uh, for especially groups you know, like the NDP and groups from that side of the spectrum to say, oh, just tax businesses. As if businesses are these big, faceless, fat cats wearing top hats. Businesses are are people. They're often businesses that have been started by individuals or by families. They've been working at it, in some cases, for decades. And to not even consult with them before sending them a bill for punishing people for employing them it's it's just patently unfair. And so this is why we really urge government to actually take a look at their own budgets, find money within their existing budgets from the tax money they already take from us, and do their jobs and provide the health care. Because if we don't, if we keep saying, oh, we need more money for transit, we need more money for health care, we need more money for this, for this, for this, we're going to wind up forking over 60% of our incomes if we're not careful. All right, Chris, we'll leave it there. We're out of time. But thanks again. Always good to have you on the show. Thank you so much for the invitation. You take care. You might remember one of the big promises from the current government during the election campaign was a renter's rebate, a rebate of $400 per renter household every year. And it sounds good. On paper, sounds like a great idea. Any amount of help to help people in a very expensive rental market, in a market where it's very difficult for a lot of people to find housing. But will it actually, or would it, it hasn't been implemented at this point, but would it actually make a difference? Is that the best way to help out renters. My next guest says probably not. Joseph Filipowicz is a senior policy analyst with the Fraser Institute and has written about this, and he joins us on the line now. Joseph, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Jill. Uh, walk us through a bit, if you can. You wrote a post about this, uh, saying that why this won't actually, if it's brought in, help people who live in Metro Vancouver. Uh, sure. So, um, you know, as you mentioned, there's a lot of people who uh, who are frustrated with rents, and it, it's completely understandable that the government would want to uh, to do something about this, right? The idea of giving renters uh, a top-up is certainly well-intentioned, but it's not particularly helpful in a region like Metro Vancouver. Uh, why? Well, basically because it does nothing to address the underlying shortage of, of rental units. So it's about the supply and even giving someone 400 bucks, even if it's not even taxed, say you've got 400 extra bucks in your pocket, that's not going to get you a place to live. Well, well not necessarily. I'm sure you've been uh, or you, you, either you've heard stories or experienced, um, you know, uh, stories about dozens of people showing up to a rental property showing and giving each of these people the same top up would do nothing to change the underlying fact that there's only one unit and it'll likely go to the person who can either pay the most or who the landlord uh, wants to give it to. So so the underlying dynamics are still there, and all it will do uh, is bid up the price of housing, especially in, in, a, in a really tight region like Metro Vancouver, right? So so underlying all of this is this issue that, um, you know, we'd need more rental units, and it's not necessarily by giving people an extra $400 annually that you're going to get more rental units. 
You're right, because, and I've even heard of that happening quite often, actually, the bidding wars. We think of bidding wars often with purchasing homes and such, but people, rentals as well, saying people are there with their their, um, references, with their housing resumes, and get into bidding wars. So if you're giving somebody the extra 400 bucks, that might be gone in a flash. Certainly, and, and, you know, with the the new mortgage rules that came in uh, federally early this year, um, you know, there's a lot of people who, who thought perhaps they'd be able to get into the property market, um, but can't because they can't necessarily qualify for uh, for a mortgage. And so all of those people are competing in the rental market as well. Um, so all this does is create a dynamic where there's a lot of people who want to rent uh, and there's just not that many units out there. So so what might really help rental or renters is the uh, the construction of more units. And, uh, and, and that can be slowed down by everything from, from rezoning to the fees associated with obtaining building permits in the first place. There's, a, there's some great uh, work that could be done in the future regarding, uh, you know, why there's a dearth in, in new rental construction compared to the 60s and 70s. You, you've also looked at this. Is, is there a magical number, not magical, I suppose, but is there a, a number where if we look at in Vancouver, Metro Vancouver, where it's below that 1% mark of rental vacancies compared to other jurisdictions, would there be places, is it that number that says whether or not something like a rental rebate would work? Uh, that, that's a good question, um, and I think that that would definitely be worth worthwhile uh, uh, to, to look at. It's not something we've looked at, but I do think that... Um, you know, that's the best bellwether that I can think of is the, the vacancy rate, um, because in regions where you have three, four, five, six percent, really more leverage for um, for uh, renters. In fact, I know people uh, in Calgary who were able to negotiate their rents down. So there was no need for government, um, you know, to to uh, top people up when they could actually bid down their rent simply because there are so many units out there and not so many renters compared to the number of units. So I, I think that's really powerful to know that when, you know, if, if, um, if renters want more leverage in, in a region where they otherwise don't have that much, it really boils down to getting more units out there. And have you looked at it or have there been examples in other markets where, with perhaps similar rental rates as Vancouver where they've tried subsidies and it hasn't worked? Um, so th- that's a good question. There's so many places out there. I don't know if I could uh, if I could name if I could name them all. I know in the United States there's um, uh, a federal program called Section Eight, which is basically uh, um, a subsidy for uh, for low-income households. And um, you know whether this works or not, I think depends primarily on whether the the region people live actually has a, a healthy supply of, uh, of rental units. Because you know if we're talking about um, low-income folks who just need a top-up. Um, that might work in, in certain regions. But if we're talking about working professionals who have, you know, a, a decent monthly income who are still not able to, uh, to, uh, um, um, to make rent, well, then we have a different kind of problem. It's not, it's not a problem about people being able to uh, uh, afford, you know, a place to rent in a normal market. It's about, it's about people not being able to even find those places, right? That's, that's when you see 12 to 20 or 40 people going to the same rental open house. And, and you touched on this as well, but the incentive to build rentals, and we've seen in some areas uh, governments trying to to give developers goodies or give them bonuses in exchange for rental housing. But how do you make it, uh, rather than building market housing, how do you make it so developers want to build? Or, or do we look to developers, or should it be cities uh, building these rental units? That's a that's a great question. Um, you know, it's not just about developers. It could also be about the role of uh, of, of long term investors like pension funds, for example, who rather 
uh, a business model that involves constructing something and selling it um, immediately actually have a longer term view. I think there's, you know, there's a lot of room to do some analysis on that. That's something <laughs> certainly we would like to do in the future, but that I don't know a tremendous amount uh, about today. Um, I think that I think that um, the role that local governments can play is is definitely um, is definitely to make it easier to get anything built, including rental units. Um, just to give you an example, the need to rezone um, in Vancouver adds about 10 months to the development process. Uh, and that's just to get, you know, shovels in the ground from the moment um, a developer wants to uh, to build something to the moment that they can actually get shovels in the ground. We're talking 10 additional months on what's already a 21-month month, uh, process. Um, so I, I think that definitely streamlining streamlining the development process um, making making zoning a lot more transparent, rezoning a lot more transparent, um, and, and certainly um, certainly taking a look at the fees that developer developers have to pay, especially the um, the um, uh, more ad hoc fees like uh, like community amenity contributions, which are negotiated. All of this could impact the bottom line of developers and steer them away from rental and more towards ownership units. Um, so I think that that a deep dive into this is something that that's well overdue. And I think in Vancouver, too, and when you mention the delay, the the 10 months on top of what is already a lengthy process to get the permits, in Vancouver as well, I think that the land itself is also subject to the empty homes tax, which puts another uh, cost to the developer that's going to be passed down, whether it's market housing or rentals, to whoever ends up living there. Certainly, all of these things add up, and at the end of the day, they uh, they impact uh, the developer's bottom line. And once again, if the idea is that they want to sell units and be able to at least turn a profit in order to uh, to keep doing what they do, um, well, then certainly there there would be an impact. Um, whereas with rental income, it might be more long term. Uh, so once again, I think there's there's uh, a lot of work that needs to be done into the feasibility of rental and and just, you know why is it that uh, far less purpose built rental is being is being constructed today than than several decades ago. And does your research look mainly then at, at like you said, purpose built rental, or also does it touch on the role of citizens as well who either have homes with basement suites or building types of housing where there is home ownership, and then it's the landlord, the the family landlord providing rent as well uh, that's a good question that's not uh, that's not directly what we look at most of our work in the past has simply looked at anybody who wants to build be it rental be it ownership um, just you know wh- how long does it take um, how much does it cost uh, what does what's the impact of rezoning for example and I think that when you you know you mentioned uh, basement suites a lot of that has more to do with zoning than it has to do with um, um, with uh, the, the feasibility of, of building new 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 units, right? Um, it's basically about people, whether or not those people are allowed um, to either have a basement suite or we're, we're seeing an increasing amount of, uh, of uh, laneway units in Vancouver, although at a very slow rate. So um, all of this boils down to what people are allowed to do uh, and how feasible it is to do it. All right, we'll leave it there. Joseph, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts, your research with us this morning. Appreciate it. Well, thanks a lot, Jill. All right, have a great rest of your weekend. You too, thanks. Well, we all know social media can be a way to connect. It can be a way to share things and organize. It can also be a platform filled with hatred. So joining us now to talk a bit more about this in a presentation made at the UBCM is Greg Moore, the current mayor of Port Coquitlam. Mayor Moore, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, you talked about this at the UBCM. What has your experience been as far as hateful things, uh, mean things uh, hurled at you via social media? Yeah, it, it's just awful. Uh, you know, there, let me, let's just say, first of all, there's 
there's a lot of great things about social media that allow politicians and our residents and businesses to connect. And there's a, you know, it, it outweighs the negative. But when the negative occurs, it is really nasty and it is personal. Uh, it's aggressive. And I think the biggest challenge that, that I've seen is, you know, it, it, we're all humans. And, and if anybody's expecting perfection out of politicians, they're going to be, you know, sorely disappointed. But uh, where it really hurts is your family because they're the ones that are also on social media. They can't necessarily respond, um, and it hurts their loved ones. So it really hurts not just the politician, but throughout their family and friends. And as a politician, you've been a politician for for many years. Has it gotten worse, do you think, with things such as Twitter and Facebook or other platforms? Um, It has gotten worse. You know, I think it's gotten worse since the American president got elected. Uh, he's leading the way of calling people names and being disrespectful. And uh, he's not quite swearing at people, but he's pretty darn close. And uh, I think it, for some people, that's given them the social license to act the same way towards politicians. Uh, it's true. When, when the president of the United States can call somebody a dog on social media and it goes with maybe a few comments, but it goes ahead, uh, it is a bit concerning, uh, to say the least. Uh, you mentioned your family and and the difference between you can't really separate the two. Have you been able to, though, as an individual, when somebody tweets at you something hurtful or posts something hurtful, are you able to shake it off? Um, you can for a certain while, but, you know, sometimes when they come repeatedly, um, it hurts. It You know, we're, per- we're her human. We want to, you know, we all strive. You know, I think everybody that gets into politics uh, strives to make life better for everyone else. Um, and so I think generally people that get into politics are there for all the right reasons. And then, you know, you get these, and not even trolls, they're individuals. You know, you can see who they are. You can see their history. Uh, and they come at you. It's just eh, one or two here or there. You just kind of, you know, water off the duck's back. But uh, as it continues, it, it wears at you. And it just, you know, you start to question, is this really worthwhile? Doesn't it say more, though, if somebody, and I know you brought up one example uh, when you were speaking about this, but if somebody calls you, uses swear words and calls you names, doesn't it say more about that person than about you? It does, and that's why I never respond, um, because I'm not about to get into a debate with someone because I think it really defines who they are. Um, But that individual owns a local eyeglass shop that's right in downtown Port Coquitlam. Uh, and that wasn't, you know, the post that I put up. There wasn't the first post that he has used swear words and says that I should, I won't say the word, but be slapped around and this sort of thing. Uh, and he's a business person that participates in the Chamber of Commerce and other things. So it's not, you know, people just stuck away in the corner of their house that are throwing these things. It's, it's the other people in society. Hmm. And I, I mean, I remember a couple of years ago, uh, Ronna Ambrose quit Twitter for exactly that reason, saying it was just too hateful. She was tired of every day uh, being bombarded with these hateful tweets and these things being said to her. Uh, do you think then on a civic level, is this a deterrent for people to get into politics? Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I've had quite a few people come up to me and say, you know, what? I'd love to get into politics. I'd love to be a city councillor, help our community out. I don't want to you know, don't be the quote-unquote full-time politician, but I want to give back. But I see what you go through, and I don't want to go through that, and I don't want my family to go through that. Is, is it why you're leaving? Uh, it's not the only reason why I'm leaving, but it's one of those pieces that it's just, it's enough is enough, and it's time to move on to a private life where uh, when I make decisions and make maybe bad decisions, uh, I'm not going to get, uh, I don't know, 
criticized uh, aggressively online. And, and I think for us as politicians, I know that I'm going to make decisions that people are going to disagree with. That's probably the hardest part about the job. But let's debate the topic. Let's have a really good debate about what the topic is and not that, you know, I'm an idiot because I made this decision. Uh, was there, is there anything that sticks out to you that was one decision perhaps that sparked more of this than others? Uh, the one that comes to my mind, and I, I don't know if this was, but the ones uh, where you guys uh, gave yourselves the raises and the retirement uh, bonuses that was then taken back. Was that one or is there one that sticks out to you that, that prompted a lot of hateful uh, social media response? Oh, that one by a long shot. Uh, people didn't want to talk about how much politicians were remunerated. They just wanted to, you know, say that I was greedy and selfish and all these other things. And, you know, I'm not sure if I know too many politicians that, uh, especially, uh, well, I shouldn't say especially, but any politician that's gone in there for greed. Um, but, you know, the transit referendum, because I was the spokesperson for the yes side, got pretty nasty as well. Um, so, you know, those are probably the two highlights of, of the negative stuff. Uh, and what do you say to people then uh, who might hear that and say, well, why not just block the people that are doing this uh, and move on? Oh, we do. Uh, the best feature on Twitter is to mute or block people and same with, uh, with Facebook. But one of the things that ha- it hasn't happened to me, but as I've done this presentation around the per- uh, province, uh, a lot of people share experiences that when they block someone on their Facebook page, then that person that they've blocked goes all over everybody else's social media page on groups, on discussion boards, and says that, you know, Councillor X is not open to free speech and can't handle it, and they're an awful person because they've blocked me on their social media page, and all I wanted to do was engage in the topic. So then they start to go after the person even in a more aggressive way. And and so where do how do you think that we remedy this in that, like you said, it can be a good platform, it can be a good way to connect and to put topics out there and to have conversations. And certainly politicians should be questioned about decisions and there should be those conversations. How do you or is there a way to make it then not so hateful? Yeah, it's a tough one. You know, I don't think first of all, I don't think social media companies uh, are doing a good enough, they're not doing any job, they're never mind a good enough job. You know, social media companies uh, will defend themselves in court and in front of people that they're just a technology platform, not a media platform. You know, you in the media, you play by rules, by different rules that and standards and ethics and codes that you have to uh, meet up to. But the social media, Facebook doesn't play by those. YouTube doesn't play by those because they define themselves as a technology company in courts, which they're just not technology companies. They're absolutely media companies, so they have a role to play. But I think also as a society, we all have a role to play. And I've had this, I've been fortunate many times, um, especially on Facebook, because there's more of a discussion that goes on Facebook than, than Twitter, um, where someone will say something nasty about me and people will then go defend me, or they will say, you know what, I also disagree with Greg's decision on this, but he's a good person that's been serving our community for this long a time, blah, 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 and let's talk about the issue. So I think more people need to bring that civility back when they see a, a politician or a community leader or someone getting attacked on the internet um, to bring that balance back. And, you know, maybe that will push those people out and not participate in those areas. And do you think that would help if we we focused more on that and did more of that to, to try and attract people who might be shying away from public service? Absolutely. I, I can tell you as the person that's been on the receiving end of it, when you start to see people in your community 
again, not necessarily defending your decision, but defending your character, defending that, you know, this is someone that's trying to make our community better. It makes you feel good inside that you're not out there as a, as a lone voice trying to um, work on behalf of the community. All right, uh, Mayor Moore, we will leave it there. But thank you for bringing attention to this. It is a, an important topic and one I think uh, that people tend to think politicians, I don't know if they think they're easier targets or in some cases it's okay, but it's good to remind people that uh, civility is an important thing to have on any platform. I totally agree. And thanks for doing this segment. All right. Thanks again. Have a great rest of your weekend. You too. Bye for now. That is uh, Greg Moore, the mayor of Port Coquitlam. Would love to get your take on this. If you've been on the receiving end of hateful tweets, social media posts, what have you, are you a politician that's done been on the receiving end or anybody for that matter? Or if you're somebody who has sent those types of messages, why would you do that?